From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Devinder Grover on MIGS, hyphema, and hysteresis at Surgical Summit 2019. I will take them back to the operating room and, and wash them out because I think blood in the eye after angle surgery is usually a bad thing. First this. This podcast and the following message is sponsored by Glaucos. The corporate founder and leader in microinvasive glaucoma surgery, Glaucos Trabecular Microbypass Technologies, which include iStent and iStent Inject, have been implanted in over 500,000 eyes worldwide and have 10 plus years of commercial experience and over 105 peer-reviewed published papers supporting safety and efficacy of these devices. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2019 Surgical Summit in Park City, Utah. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Devinder Grover on MIGS and hyphema and on corneal hysteresis. I'm here with Devinder Grover. Devinder, I'm I'm a comprehensive um, ophthalmologist, cataract surgeon. Uh, There's this stuff that I'm I'm not used to dealing with, this red stuff. What do you guys call it, blood? Uh, Because we don't see it during, during the, the... let's just say, the vast majority of cataract surgery. MIGS has, has become an, an important part of, of my practice, and now all of a sudden I'm operating on this tissue that's, that's vascular. Usually, uh, the, the, the vast majority of, of, the, of the time, there's a little bit of uh, blood. To me, it's nice because it verifies that I'm in the right place, um, but, but that's it. But there's, of course, there's the potential for really clinically significant bleeding, we're talking about uh, hyphema. Uh, um, you spoke about this. Let, let, let me get you to, to flesh this out and then I'll have more specific questions. Yeah, so when you're dealing with, with angle surgery or MIGS, you really have to understand uh, hyphema, which is bleeding, reflux bleeding typically. And, uh, and traditionally, the more the angle you open up, the the more blood you'll actually see. And, uh, and so I, you know, I kind of I, I think there's a couple different ways that you can approach management or thinking about hyphema in, in glaucoma surgery. So, you know, there's the, what can I do before the surgery to manage hyphema? What can I do during the surgery to manage hyphema? And what can I do afterwards? So, you know, when we think about what we can do before, I really think about prepping the patient. So is the patient on blood thinners? Does the patient have a lot of scar tissue in the nasal angle? That will impact what, what type of MIGS procedure I'm thinking about. If they're on blood thinners, I won't do something like a GAT where we open up 360 degrees. I may consider doing a Cahook dual blade, goniotomy, or an eye stent or a hydra, something that's maybe a little bit less invasive and opens up uh, a lower amount of tissue. Uh, then intraoperatively, you know, there's things you can do to help maximize your view and minimize intraoperative hyphema. 
which is having the patient in a slight reverse Trendelenburg, having their head above their heart, which minimizes episcleral venous pressure. That really lowers the risk of blood reflux during the surgery. And then also maintaining your anterior chamber. The way you avoid any complication during anterior segment surgery is having a formed chamber. So when you always maintain your chamber, that really helps you ensure success and also maximizes your visualization. And then postoperatively, you know, I really make sure the patients maintain that, uh, that high, those high FEMA precautions with their head above their heart, not bending over, doing any exertion for the first week. And, and, uh, and doing that can really minimize the risk of intraoperative and postoperative high FEMA, maximize the patient's visualization and recovery. Uh, the other thing I do is when you do experience a significant layered high FEMA, I'm, I'm pretty quick to, to wash it out. So if they have a, a layered, a three to four millimeter layered high FEMA at the first week, um, I will take them back to the operating room and, and wash them out because I think blood in the eye after angle surgery is usually a bad thing. It will induce scar tissue formation and can potentially decrease the likelihood of success after angle surgery. So I'm very careful within the first week to make sure the vast majority of the blood is gone. Even if, the, even if in the presence of blood the pressure is normal? Correct, correct. No, I mean, micro hyphema, you know, two, three plus cell, a one millimeter hyphema, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't worry me too much. But I'm talking about at one week, pressure's reasonable, but they have a three to four millimeter hyphema, the eye looks a little inflamed. Yes, I take them back and just do a quick bimanual uh, INA, topically wash them out, and then I'm aggressively treating them with uh, anti-inflammatory medication to ensure they don't get that type of aggressive fibrotic response that may potentially cause my angle surgery to fail. Now, obviously, with my, my, my routine cataract surgery, I do not instruct the patient on positioning of, of, the, of the head post-op because it's not, not, not needed. And uh, I, I haven't been doing that for my mixed cases either. If, if I have a mixed case and I don't get a lot of bleeding, is this something that I should still be, be doing? What, 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 what do I do? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think so, and I, but I'm, I'm biased. You know, there's no randomized controlled trial saying, okay, patients that had a stent placed in their or uh, in their angle, and half of them bent down, half of them didn't, and the ones that bent down did worse. But again, I think in general, a, a general rule, and the way you think you should think about it is that blood in the eye after a surgery is probably bad after angle surgery. And so things you can do to maximize your chances of, of not having blood, I think, is the best. So, um, so I do just tend to, I have that discussion with them preoperatively in the exam lane. Say, hey, Ms. Jones, guess what? We're going to do uh, phaco MIGs, and you may have a little bit of bleeding afterwards. This is different than your neighbor that had cataract surgery and saw 2020 the next day and was out playing golf. This is going to be a little different because we're doing both at the same time. And, uh, and to minimize the risk of bleeding, I would like you to sleep on your back with your head elevated for about, about 30 degrees uh, and, and have that discussion with them preoperatively to set expectations and to get a sense if they tell me, you know what, I don't care what you're saying, I can't lay on my back with my head elevated. A head elevated, I have to lay flat, then I may reconsider or change what angle surgery I'm considering. Frequently when cataract surgeons are, are taught MIGs, when, when, when they're taught to, you know, how to start doing MIGs, um, they're instructed to perform the mix portion of the procedure at the end of the case because the angles open wider. I have shifted to doing MIGs at, if the exposure is adequate at the start of surgery, specifically because if I get bleeding, um, I, I have that time to sort of wash things 
out, I'm not thinking ab about blood layering. I'm thinking about getting blood cells on the beautiful lens that I'm going to put in the eye, but that's just me. Um, it, what, what, it, it, what, what do you do? When do you do MIGS in the course of a, of a, of a procedure? And I understand it's going to be different if it's, if it's MIGS plus, if you're doing something that's a bleb, which I, I don't do anyway. So how I order my MIGs compared to my cataract surgery actually depends on what I do. So typically, um, I don't like to do an eye stent, an eye stent inject, um, before cataract surgery because those, those, the opening and the osteo of those stunts are so small that I'm always worried that a small piece of lens fragment is going to go in there and clog it up and I won't be able to see that. So when it comes to eye stent, eye stent inject, hydrus, I typically do after my cataract surgery. When it comes to things like the hook dual blade goniotomy or GAT, then I, um, I do them before uh, because I also think there's a therapeutic effect of lavaging the outflow system and, and washing the eye out and getting that hyphema washed out. Uh, and, uh, and those, I think, do better before cataract surgery. Now, understanding that when you are delving into MIGs, and especially MIGs that open up more of the angle, uh, it does change the feel of cataract surgery. So I would say get used to things first because having blood in the eye, and it is a little stumbling block. So when you're first kind of jumping into this space, you may want to just do things to stack the deck in your, in your favor to optimize your visualization. But, uh, but it will change the fluid dynamics just a little bit, and the blood can alter view. But when you have an irrigation aspiration probe in the eye or the phaco probe, it pretty clears things out. It pretty much clears things out, and, and you get a pretty good view. So, but that's my general order to, to patients before I do the GAT or uh, the Cook dual blade. And then uh, typically in patients, where I do it afterwards are the stents. This is practical stuff. I, I, I now a, a game plan. If I have a, a patient with blood that's layering, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to send them to you. Um, I, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, bringing this uh, interesting topic to us, very relevant topic to us, uh, and as always for being so very generous with your time with us yeah. today. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and it's been a pleasure. I'm here with Devinder Grover. Devinder gave some really, really interesting talks, interesting subjects. One of them is a subject that I, I've, I've been following for, uh, for, uh, for a while. I've got a lot of questions about it. I'm going to let you flesh it out, which is corneal hysteresis. So first of all, for those viewers who, who don't know what this 50 cent term means, uh, let's have you spell it out and what its relevance is. And then I've got questions about its applicability to clinical practice. Well, thank you for having me here. You know, I think that's a great way to start off because before I started getting involved in corneal hysteresis, the, just the word and the idea of hysteresis was just, it was very daunting for me to kind of get my, wrap my head around. I'm a, I'm a glaucoma guy, you know, I just know pressure high, pressure low, I kind of just think of things very simply. So when I think of corneal hysteresis, I kind of really try to just think, it, think of it in a way that I can ex understand it and think of it in a way that I can successfully explain it to my patients. And so hysteresis in essential terms for me, the way I think about it is it's the shock absorbing ability of the eye. And it's the way the eye responds when it's exposed to a pressure. And we know quite convincingly that patients that have a bad shock absorbing ability eye or a low corneal hysteresis are at higher risk for developing glaucoma and higher risk of getting worse with glaucoma. And conversely, patients that have a great shock-absorbing eye, patients that have a really good shock absorber, they have a hysteresis about over 10, they are at a lower risk of developing glaucoma and a lower risk of getting worse with glaucoma. So it can really help me at the exam lane 
risk stratify my patients in real time, and it's had a tremendous impact on my on my practice. No, um, before we we talk about why this might be true. Why don't you tell us how hysteresis is, is measured in the context of clinical practice? What, what device is a hysteresitometer or whatever it is it's called? So hysteresis is measured with a, a, a quick puff test. Uh, it's a specific output that is made by the Aura 3 device that's put out by Riker Technology. So it's very specific to the technology itself. But it's a machine where the patient sits in and it takes you know a few seconds per eye. It's a quick puff, puff, and it feels the same as the standard non contact tenometer, uh, but it gives a lot more information. It's a very different technology, even though the patient's experience is the same. Now, um, presumably, the mechanism by which hysteresis is associated with glaucoma risk doesn't really have to do with the, with the cornea. I'm assuming, uh, well, not that I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, it, it, it's been written that there uh, may be a correlation between hysteresis of the cornea and pliability of the lamina. Is, is that right or is that old news? No, that is right. And there have been, you know, the idea of thinking of the eye in a, in a biomechanical continuum or spectrum. And this is something that I, you know, I thought about first when I was a, when I was a medical student and I, when I was thinking about glaucoma. And I was like, well, why, why do we care about what's going on in the front of the eye and the pressure in the front of the eye when, when in truth what we care about is what the nerve is being exposed to and how do we know that what we're measuring in the front it actually translates into what the nerve is being exposed to. So, you know, I think it's... It's a. It could be a stretch to kind of think about uh, when we talk about elasticity and responsiveness and everything like that. I think it's we go down a slippery path that when a biophysicist hears me explain it, they cringe because I think it's just I don't have the knowledge to fully explain what's going on. But when you look at there have been some studies that have shown in patients that have low tension glaucoma, they put on a, a LASIK suction ring and they've elevated the pressure to about 50 millimeters of mercury and they've done an OCT of the optic nerve head pre and post this movement. They show that patients that have a lower hysteresis have a, a nerve that's more deform, deformable and more susceptible to the, being exposed when the pressure is elevated. So I think there is a mechanistic interpretation of what hysteresis is showing us. But what I like to do, again, because I'm a glaucoma guy, I like to simplify things, is take a step back and just say, hey, what do we know? We know through very well-controlled prospective studies that when a patient has a hysteresis of lower than 10, they're at a higher risk of getting glaucoma and a higher risk of getting worse with glaucoma. And when a patient has a hysteresis of greater than 10, they are at a higher risk of, a lower risk of developing glaucoma and getting worse from glaucoma. So when you, you can think about the mechanism if, you're, if, if that, that helps, but I, I think it's sometimes easy to get, uh, to explain it incorrectly where the purists really get kind of upset about it. But if you kind of take a step back and simplify the message, it's a, it's a very powerful glaucoma vital sign. Now, one of the, the, the criticisms that's been made, or one of the, impediments to the adoption of hysteresis in, in clinical practice is the track record of the variability of readings, the, the fact that, that the hysteresis readings in a single patient tend to be uh, less consistent than we're used to when we're checking intraocular pressure. How, how do you work with that? So the question in terms of, of reliability, I mean, you do have a reliability waveform score down at the bottom, and it can be altered by drops and, and, and other things. So I... Um, I really make sure we have a good reliability f wave score form 
around seven or eight or nine. Uh, and when you get a good powerful signal strength essentially, you don't see that variability. Uh, if you would do this after patients already had a drop placed in their eye, preparacaine or fluoresce or something, it can alter the reliability. But consistently we're not seeing that dramatic of a change. It can change after an intervention. So, you know, when I have a patient that I start on a drop or have as a surgery, it can change and I create a new baseline. But, but traditionally, the reproducibility of this technology and the latest uh, machine is, is actually quite good. Well, the, this is great stuff, very, very practical stuff. Uh, I mean, clearly pressure is not all that, uh, and it, it would be nice to, to, to have some additional parameter that we can follow going forward, in addition to obviously, you know, visual field testing and OCT and this sort of stuff. I want to thank you for, for, for making this really very complicated topic very clear. You make it sound very simple. Uh, and uh, for the generosity of the time you've shown us with your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, and it's truly fun to talk about something that I think is an essential glaucoma vital sign. So thank you. We want to express our appreciation to Glaucos for sponsoring this podcast. Devinder Grover comes to us from the Glaucoma Associates of Texas in Dallas, Texas. Ask questions of Dr. Grover or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.